Praise the Lord. Scripture reader be coming from Psalm 113. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. And blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, in his glory above the heaven, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heaven and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. If you know uh, Henry well enough, you know why we picked him to read our worship, our, our uh, scripture today. As I started studying Psalm 113, I could hear Henry in my head saying, praise the Lord. And I'm not sure that worship's going to get any better than him reading Psalm 113 today. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance we have uh, to come before your word even now. God, we want to come with hearts that are eager to praise you, the Lord our God. Father, we recognize that uh, our hearts may not be in that place this morning. Even as we have sung, even as we have prayed, even as we have heard from the cooks and the work they're doing in Waketlan and Mexico, God, our, our hearts have plenty of reason to be stirred to praise you. And yet we confess uh, that our minds are easily distracted, our hearts are easily captivated by lesser things. And so, God, we present our hearts before you today, confessing their stubbornness and their slowness to proclaim your glory. God, may your word work on our hearts, and our minds, on our souls, even now, so that we would be stirred to praise you. God, your word has given us abundant reason to praise you. Your work in our time, in our days, you have given us abundant reason to praise you. God, may we not miss that. May our eyes be open to who you are, to your character, to your nature, to the way you work in us. And may we behold you and may we worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the things our, our culture values, for any number of reasons, is we value uniqueness or originality. People like to be one of a kind or, you know, we'll say one in a million not thinking about the math, that if you're one in a million and, you know, eight billion people in the world, that means there's a lot of you. But you know what I mean. We say that we want to be unique, and we want the things we do to be unique. We want to be uh, our, our own people. And so whether there be uh, products people are selling or, or restaurants people are going to, people are always working to differentiate themselves and say, we are not like other people. We are different. Our product is different. Our thing is different. It's unique. Therefore, you should probably spend your money with us. That's usually what's coming, right? One, one such restaurant that uh, has a claim on uniqueness uh, is a restaurant from my home state of Alabama. 
uh, called Dreamland Barbecue. Now, I didn't know their story, but I, I looked them up this weekend. And um, they started with a guy named John Big Daddy Bishop, who claimed that God visited him in a dream and told him to open up a restaurant. Uh, he opened his first Dreamland Barbecue in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and that to date is the only good thing to come out of that city. <laughs> that was a deliberate dig at our student pastor who may or may not cheer for a, a university with a presence somewhere around that city. Early in the years of Dreamland, um, they sold everything from burgers to postage stamps, uh, but their beef ribs that were hickory-fired ribs became a local favorite, and their slogan became, Ain't nothing like them nowhere. Ain't nothing like them nowhere. Uh, they have expanded out. They have 11 different restaurants, including one of the first three or four, I think, was just down the road from my, my, skid, my, skid, my school as a kid. Uh, and uh, they, the, their ribs, it's still, still if I'm going to go back to Mobile, there's only a couple of restaurants i got to make sure I hit. Dreamland is one of them. So they're, they're good. They're good ribs. If you're, if, you're there, if you're around, I recommend them. But you know what? It's still just a barbecue place. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we got a lot of barbecue around here. There's a lot of barbecue across the South, and everybody's got their opinions about who's the best and who's the greatest, you know. This place, they, they decorate their place with, uh, with license plates from all across the country. Who else does it? You know, that's not, even that's not all that unique. So they say there's ain't nothing like them nowhere, but I'm just going to guess. If you just really good, well-cooked, you know, cooked well, not like overdone, but, you know, well done, nicely cooked, big beef ribs with an original made barbecue sauce, like you probably could find something like that somewhere, right? You probably don't have to go to Tuscaloosa, which you don't want to go there anyway. You don't have to go to Mobile. You don't have to go to wherever to get, to get Dreamland barbecue. You can get it probably somewhere else. And that's true of a lot of things. A lot of things are not all that original. Take just about any movie. Picture the last movie you saw. I'm going to tell you the plot of the last movie you saw. You ready? There was a person or some people that things started out where they were going pretty well, but then there was a problem. And so then they worked to fix that problem. And for a little while, it looked like the problem was getting worse. But then something very unexpected happened, and they were able to resolve that problem. And they may have had some losses and some suffering and challenges along the way, but they learned some lessons and they grew because of it. And more or less, most of the people lived and they lived happily ever after. Is that the last movie you saw? That's the last 100 movies I've seen, right? Originality is not, you know, people put different flashes or change the time period of the location, but more or less, we're telling the same stories, we're eating the same barbecue, we're not all that original. And that's okay. Originality is not the highest virtue in life. It's okay not to be original. In fact, as people, when we recognize that we have a lot more in common than we have different, we actually build a lot of common ground. There's a reason for that. It's okay not to always be original. Whether we are talking about books or churches or whatever else it may be, we may not all be that different, and that's okay. But there's one very important example of originality that I want to draw your attention to this morning. There's one very clear example of uniqueness that is unquestionable and it is definite. And that's this. There is no one like our God. Amen. There is no one like our God. Psalm 113 that Henry just read for us gives us at least two ways that God is unique 
that we will consider this morning, and that's this. There was no one like our God. There is no one like our God in majesty and mercy. There is no one like our God in majesty and mercy. God is truly unique in a category all by himself. There will not be another God like him. He is unique in him being God. We naturally group things in categories, and then within that category, we may rank them in some form or fashion. So you could take a, a group of, of mountain ranges and rank them in, in size. You could go from the Appalachian Mountains to the Rocky Mountains to the Andes to the Himalayas, right? You could take a list of, of rivers. I didn't actually do this in order. I don't know the length of these rivers, I'm realizing now, but things like the Savannah, the Ohio, the Mississippi, the Nile, the Amazon, right? You can have categories, and within that category, you could go from lesser to greater. God is not at the top of some category. He is in a category all by himself. There's not a category of beings that moves from ants to dogs to horses to people to angels to God, right? That's, that's not how it works. There are categories of created beings, there's a category of everything that's ever been created, and then there is a singular category of an uncreated being, and that is God. And there is a chasm that is infinite between them. Everything that's ever been made and God, they are separate. They are not, you can't climb the ladder and get to God. He's, you can't say he's, he's like if we had a really, really smart person who also lived forever and could fly and had superpowers, and then you get to God. You can't just move up some ladder and get to him. He is unique. He is solitary. There is no one like our God. God and God alone is God. And let me encourage you, that's a good thing. Amen. That is a really good thing that God alone is God. That means he has no rivals. He has no equals. He has no potential threats or something that might bring his authority into question. In the, human, in, the, in the sports world, there may be whoever the greatest quarterback is of the day or the greatest pitcher or the greatest butterfly swimmer. And for a while, they may seem untouchable. But you know what happens to all of them? They get old and slow. And they no longer are the best of the best. A rival comes along and they are dethroned from their position of being the best. They may even lose the, the, the title of greatest of all time. You just never know who's going to come next. That never happens with God. He will never be dethroned by some rival God, rival deity that gets enough power to all of a sudden be better than the one true God. He is unrivaled. And we need that. We need an unrivaled God. If we're going to have any kind of a security, any kind of assurance in this world, we need an unrivaled God. Psalm 113 verse 5 Ask this question, who is like the Lord our God? Who is like the Lord our God? And to be clear, it is not that the psalmist was standing in front of the, the, the congregation, reading that out and waiting for a response, expecting somebody to stand up on the back row and say, oh yeah, that's me, I, I'm like God, right? He, he was not anticipating, God was not proclaiming this and waiting for the other nations to go, oh yeah, you've got, you've got your God and, and I've got my God Baal or Asherah and, and they're basically more or less the same. No, no, this question is, is a rhetorical question, and it is an emphatic statement that there is no one like our God. Who is like our God means there is no one like our God. 
And that truth is so important to me that we named our son, There is No One Like Our God. You know him as Micah, but his name Micah means who is like Yahweh. There is no one and nothing who will ever be like our God. And that theme comes up over and over again in the Bible. As the people come out of Exodus, out of Egypt in the Exodus, and they sing God's praises after they have come through the Red Sea. They sing in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The book of Micah begins with the name Micah, who is like Yahweh, and it ends with this proclamation near the end in Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? Why? What is unique about him that Micah is just celebrating about him? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? Exodus, Micah, Psalm 113, proclaiming, There is no one like our God in majesty or in mercy. And that is good news. There is no one like him. Or as Dreamland's John Big Daddy Bishop might would have said, Ain't nothing like him nowhere. There is no one like our God. That's the middle verse of Psalm 113 and the main theme that carries throughout this short psalm. It begins with an invitation to praise this our unique God, proclaiming verse 1 that all servants, that is everybody that knows God, everybody who serves the living God, you should praise His name. Then it speaks of when we should praise His name. Verse 2, from this time forth and forevermore. When, when should we praise Him? He says, well, if you haven't started already, start praising Him now and then don't stop. That's when you should praise the Lord. What about where? Where should God be praised? Verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting. So he says, really, the only places that, that you really should praise God, I mean, there's a limited space. I mean, it's the places that are touched by the sun when it comes up in the morning to then wherever the sun continues to touch until it sets, which is everywhere on the earth. So everywhere from the far east to the far west, all the way around the world, that's where God should be placed, praised. All times, all places, everywhere, everybody should be proclaiming the greatness of God. And three times in those verses, they're invited to praise the name of the Lord. Verse 1, bless the name of the Lord. Verse 2, verse 3, and the name of the Lord is to be praised. God's name is His self-revelation, how He has proclaimed Himself to His people. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the one who has made a covenant with His people so that they may know Him truly as He is. Not just a guess from looking at the stars and the mountains, not just a, an assumption based on the order of the world, but the way God has truly revealed Himself to be. He is the one who is worthy of our praise. What is it about Him that's worthy of our praise? Well, we said He is unique. There's no one like Him. And specifically, we said there's two things, His majesty and His mercy. So if you're following along the outline I've got for you in your bulletin, there's no one like our God in majesty and mercy. We praise God for those two things, and then I want to show you how we praise God for how He puts those two things together. So that's why there's three things below your main point, not just two. Two reasons we praise Him, and then the way that God puts those things together. So the first way we proclaim His majesty is this. There is no one like our God in majesty. Praise the Lord whose glory is above the heavens. 
Praise the Lord, whose glory is above the heavens. Verse 4 and 5, the Lord is high above the nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? The psalmist is proclaiming God's majesty, His glory, is above even the sky above. It is above the heavens. This is a way of speaking of God's transcendence, that He is greater over all things. To say that God is above the heavens is not giving you an address that you could drive or walk or take a rocket ship to go see Him. This is not a, a spatial reference. It's not like saying, well, the, the cookie jars is above the microwave and God is above the heavens, as if you could get to that spot. That's not the point in the above reference here. The speaking of God's glory is above the heavens is speaking of His transcendence and that He is uniquely above all human experience and knowledge. He is above and beyond anything we could comprehend. He's in a category all by Himself. You can't just climb some ladder and get your mind around inventing who God is. He is above even the heavens. The Bible frequently uses, especially in the Old Testament, heavens in the plural, because in the, the ancient ways, the way they thought about heavens, they're including a lot of things we use different words for, like atmosphere, where the, where the rain and the clouds all comes from, to where the, the sky, the sun, the moon and stars, all that, plus the place where, where the throne of God is. That was the, all the heavens. Above all that, he's saying, above all that, that's where God is. They, didn't, they too didn't believe you could physically take some kind of flying chariot to go visit God in some physical location that is above the heavens. They were speaking of His greatness, of His power, of His majesty, and of His glory. He says all, all, the, all the amazing things you can see in the night sky, all the incredible views we get to see as the thunderclouds come rolling in and the sun shines, all those things, His glory is way more majestic than even any of that. He is above all those things. And His majesty is above all the nations. He is sovereign over all things. Verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations. It's referring to the reality that there is no single nation or president or dictator or army or empire or even all the nations put together who could ever dethrone God. God is above all the nations. There's not some evil ruler out there in the world, past, present, or future, who's going to have, be able to do something with his or her nation that is going to somehow mess up God's plans. God is sovereign over all the nations. They can get together at the United Nations. They can get to the, together at the Olympics. Whatever we want to do, they're not going to stop God from doing what He wants to do. God is sovereign over all the nations. He is in control. God tells us what to do, not vice versa. The nations don't get to tell God when He shall go and do His things. God tells us. No economic upswing or downswing has ever been unplanned by God. God is not caught off guard by some national catastrophe or international affair. God is above and in charge of all those things. A CEO of some corporation may or may not know all the intricate details of his or her company, even though it belongs to him or her. And yet God is not that way. He knows every detail and is in charge of every detail of his universe. There is no one like our God in majesty. Just try to come up with anybody else who would rival God in that kind of transcendent, sovereign glory over all the earth. You can sit here all day. You can rack your brain all you want. 
You can list any number of historical references, past, present, or ideas you may have about the future. You're not going to come up with a rival for our God in His majesty. Because there isn't one. There is no one like our God. Praise the Lord, whose glory is above the heavens. And in the same breath, Psalm 113 says, not only is He majestic, but He is also merciful. He is merciful. Psalm 113 took you to the, takes us to the, to the far reaches of the heavens to behold the majesty of God. And then in the same breath, Psalm 113 comes swooping down to our everyday lives of the reality of living here on this earth. Verses 5, 6, and 7, say, he says, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks down, far down on the heavens and the earth, and raises the poor from the dust, and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Just because God is majestic and holy and astoundingly glorious does not mean He is far away or distracted or aloof. No, He is with us in our mess. And He is merciful to us through it all. Praise the Lord whose glory is above the heavens and praise the Lord whose glory is to stoop down and raise us up here on earth. Praise the Lord above the heavens and praise the Lord whose glory is to stoop down and raise us up on earth. God on high in His great mercy is willing to stoop down to our level and raise us up. That's a lot of mercy. Verse 6 describes God as being the one who looks down on the heavens and the earth, which again is kind of a reference to how he, He's so big and so great that even the heavens are below him. He has to look down, you know. But he looks down on heaven and earth. And that in itself, in itself is incredible. He, why would God take the time to look at us? Doesn't he have more astounding things, more beautiful things he could be watching? Like he has galaxies, like plural, <laughs> that he has put into place and that are doing all kinds of incredible things that we still don't even fully understand, of course. And yet he wants to look at us. He wants to look at us. Have you ever thought about, I don't know how this works. I'm going to talk about this like I kind of know. I promise I don't. Have you ever thought about how a star is made? Have you ever thought about how, how a star is made? Some, you know, NASA or something else I Googled tells me a little bit about how it's made. There's like some masses, big things in the world, or you, not world, out of the world. That's the point. Uh, that with the gravitational pull get pulled together, like big masses, and then this cloud of space stuff. They get in the gravity, get pulled together with such a strong force that their gravitational starts, it starts building more and more gravity that the center of it gets super, 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 super hot. And it pulls together more and more and more stuff. You're welcome. That's your science lesson for the day. <laughs> Somebody, the, some of you are looking around like, I could describe that way better. Go talk to them. But whatever it looks like, I want to watch that. If I had the choice of watching you know, almost 8 billion of us walk around every day scrolling on our phones, doing this around the globe, or I could watch a star being made. I'd look at that. <laughs> I wouldn't look at Earth. Just the fact that God looks at us is an incredible act of mercy. Praise God that He pays attention to all of our most mundane, boring, everyday things. They, they woke up again. They had oatmeal again for breakfast. Like, what, how interesting are we? And yet God looks at us and does more than just look. If you're holding an NIV or an NLT, it doesn't use the word look. It uses the word stoop. He stoops down. 
And that's because the word used in Hebrew here can, be mean, can mean to, to humble yourself, to abase yourself, to bring yourself low. It, it's more than just a, an observation, just seeing this there. It is deliberately uh, bringing oneself down, humbling oneself down to be a part of what's going on. The same God who we just said is glorious over all the galaxies, over all the stars, above all the heavens, He is stooping down, humbling Himself, paying attention to us, and caring for us. Theologians will describe this as God's condescension. Not that God is condescending, but that He condescends Himself, abases Himself, humbles Himself to be with us. Lowly, tiny, sinful people. What great mercy God has. God on high looks down, stoops down to us. But that's not where His mercy ends. His mercy is more. Verse 7, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He doesn't just look down. He doesn't just stoop down, humble Himself. When He gets here, He helps us. He raises us out of the dust and ashes. Praise the Lord who's glorious to stoop down and to raise us up on the earth. God sees the trouble we're in and He helps. He lends a hand. He pulls us out of the dust and ashes. Dust and ashes represent having nothing. If you're sitting in ashes, it's a way of saying, I got nothing. I am, it just Everything I have is dust. Frequently, that, that term, those terms show up when people are repenting. It's a way of abasing, humbling yourself and saying, I have messed up so bad, I got nothing. I'm just sitting here in dust. Like we talk about from Genesis or the funeral, we say, you know, from dust you were created from to dust you shall return. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. So I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. We are sitting in ash heaps. And God says, let me help you up. Let me lift you up. You who are poor and needy, let me pull you out of your ashes. Has anybody got a testimony like that? Anybody got a time in your life, you've been sitting in ashes, so to speak, where you had nothing. You're at the rock bottom. Everything seemed to be going wrong, and God raised you up. Like we proclaimed out of Psalm 30 last week, weeping lasts for the night. But has anybody experienced the joy that comes with the morning? Praise the Lord. Praise Him for His mercy. Praise Him whose glory is to stoop down and raise us up on the earth. And when He pulls us out, not only does He look down, not only does He stoop down, not only does He raise us up, but He takes us from ashes and gives us a place of honor. You hear verse 8? To make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. It's a picture of going from nothing to having everything. You went from sitting in ashes, having nothing, to being a ruler, to being a prince. This is the story of David being the youngest of all his brothers, not even brought in to meet Samuel. And yet Samuel says, no, he is going to be king. He goes from being the, the youngest, smallest little brother sitting out just in the fields watching the sheep to being king over Israel. This is the story of Joseph who goes from spending years in prison. Talk about having nothing, that nobody's paying him attention. And to, from there to being the second in command, only behind Pharaoh over all of Egypt. This is how God works. He takes His children, His people, out of the ashes and gives us a place of honor. And this is not just theoretical, but it is real life. Verse 9, He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Over and over again, the, the testimony 
of God's mercy to his people is shown by God giving a child to somebody who couldn't have a child. That story gets repeated over and over again as a demonstration of God's mercy. Take Abraham and Sarah, who were 190 years old. 100, one of them being 100, not 190, you know what I mean. He was 100, she was 90, they had children. Isaac and Rebekah struggled with infertility. God gave them twins, not just one, but two. Jacob and Esau, that was the twins they had, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had two wives, always a bad idea, but Rachel, whom he loved, could not have children while Leah had plenty until God gave her, uh, Rachel, two boys eventually, Joseph and then Benjamin. Over and over again in the Bible, God intervenes not just on the big scale of the Exodus, but on the small scale of your home, where He intervenes in people's lives and does merciful, gracious things like giving a child to a woman who could not have one. Derek Kidner, one of the, surely one of the best modern commentators on the Psalms, says about Psalm 113, we see that for God... Nothing is too great for him, and no one is too small. God is ruler over all the nations, and he's the ruler over every woman's womb. Nothing is too big, and no one is too small. The same God who is majestic over the heavens and the stars and the mountains is the same God who is attentive to look down on us and care for us in our needs. God cares intimately about everything going on in our lives. He is looking on us. He is stooping down to us. He's humbling himself. He is aware of what's going on, and he gives us, takes us out of ashes and gives us a place of honor. Perhaps you have experienced that in a real and tangible way, even in this lifetime. Perhaps you have testimonies of proclaiming God's glory and his greatness out of ashes and into a place of honor but maybe as I say that you say, I'm still waiting for that swooping down, rising up and being placed on the honor. I feel a lot more like I'm still in the ashes and not on the place of honor with the princes. If that's you, I want to give you just a few more examples and see if this might help you to see the way God is at work even now. The book of 1 Samuel starts with a story of a man named Elkanah and his wife named Paniah, who had children and another wife. Remember, bad idea, two wives. Anyway, the other wife's name was Hannah, and she did not have children. Hannah was an, an ordinary Israelite woman whose womb had been closed, and God had not given her children. And she comes to the temple like she does every single year, and she's praying fervently, so fervently for a child that Eli the priest thinks she's drunk. He comes to her, rebukes her for her drunkenness. Says, she says, no, 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 I'm not drunk. I'm praying for God. God praying to God. And Eli recognizes her holiness and her righteousness and tells her, God has said, you will have a child. Sure enough, God opens Hannah's womb. She has a son who she named Samuel. Samuel, she gives anoints to the Lord to serve him in the temple. Samuel goes on to be one of the greatest leaders, the last judge who then anoints the next kings, Saul and then David. An ordinary woman praying for God to intervene, and she doesn't just get any old child, which would have been more than enough of an answer. She gets Samuel. We got two books named after the guy. This is Samuel. That's who God gave. In, in second, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we get the recording that we get recorded for us, Hannah's song that she sings, praising God for what the gift he has given. 
And as, he, as I'm going to read you just part of this, I want to see if you recognize now part of this song. She says, 1 Samuel 2, 8, He, God, raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Where do you think Psalm 113 got its inspiration? Psalm 113 probably was rejoicing over our high and mighty God who also intervenes in the daily lives of people like Hannah, so much so that it quotes Hannah's song and sings it back to God in praise once again. That was Hannah's version. Here's Psalm 113. God raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap, makes them to sit with princes. Whoever wrote Psalm 113 was probably had Hannah's song in mind. That's one more example of God intervening in an ordinary person's life, giving her far more than she could have expected, and doing truly great things. There is no one like our God in majesty and in mercy. He is, his glory is above the heavens, and we praise Him because He stoops down and raises us up on earth. But you may be saying, yeah, yeah, that's just one more Bible example. What about me? So what about Hannah? So what about Rebecca? So what about Sarah? What about me? One more thing about Hannah's song. About a thousand years or so after Hannah sang that song, after she got pregnant, there's another woman who couldn't have children. Her name was Elizabeth. Her husband's name was Zechariah. He was a Levite serving in the temple. And one day while he's serving in the temple, an angel appeared to him and said, You, though y'all are past your age and normally for having children, you will have a child. God answered that request that, she, that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying, and they had a child, and his name was John, John the Baptist, who then went on to tell us, prepare the way for the Messiah. Another woman around the same time, a relative of Elizabeth's, whose name was Mary, she also could not get pregnant, but for a very different reason. It's not that she was barren, it's that she was young, unmarried, and a virgin. And yet God intervened yet again, but on a whole different level. She conceived by the Holy Spirit. Sounds a lot like verse 9. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Mary who Mary had not even been thinking about children. And God gave her a child. And in Luke chapter 1, we get a song that sounds a lot like Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah had sang... Uh, the bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Mary saying in Luke chapter 1, My soul magnifies the Lord. He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He brought down the mighty from the thrones and exalted those of humble estate. If we ever doubt God whose glory is above the heavens, that He really cares about you and me enough to stoop down into our daily lives then I want you to know this. God was so willing to stoop down to our level and raise us up that He physically came Himself. We praise the Lord over heaven who raises us up from dust because He is the Lord who came from heaven to earth. We praise God not just in theory, not just uh, abstractly or from other stories. We praise God because He came God the Son came to earth to raise us up to be with Him. Praise the Lord who came from heaven 
and earth. Psalm 113, when it was written, the psalmist had no idea just how right it was about the nature of God. Jesus was in heaven from all of eternity past. John 17, Jesus says that he prays his disciples would see the glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus has always existed. He has always been, he has always been glory from ever, forever and ever. He's always been in heaven and yet he came to earth. Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And what did he do while he was here on earth? Did he hang out with the princes or did he hang out with the dust and ashes type people? Luke 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He's hanging out in the dust and the ashes. And what did he do with those people, with the people like you and me? Titus 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He showed us mercy in saving us. But my favorite connection out of Psalm 113, the New Testament, is this talk about princes. This whole sit on the throne thing, I don't know about that. Salvation, okay, we see that connection. But he says he raises the poor from the dust. He makes them to sit with princes. Surely that piece of the psalm is only reserved for the Davids and the Joseph type people. That's not everyday ordinary people like me, is it? I mean, even Hannah, she didn't get to sit on the throne. Her descendant did. That was pretty cool. But can ordinary people like us, what throne are we going to have? I have a hard enough time keeping up with just a, one house. I can't keep up with a kingdom. It gets good. For the select few, yes, a throne here on earth. But there's something far better God offers us. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's your salvation, right? You went from death to life. Verse 6, And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's your throne. There's your throne. And it is way better than anything David ever had. It's way better than anything Joseph ever had. Joseph's throne came and went. David's throne came and went. Your throne with our eternal God will never pass away because Jesus is on it and he has invited you to come and sit with him. Philippians 2, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He has the greatest name ever. And where is he seated? He's seated on a throne. Revelation 4, John sees the throne, the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, etc., etc. And the throne, the elders are throwing their, their, their crowns down, and everybody's around this throne. And Jesus tells us through Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2, I'm raising you up, and you have been seated. Past tense. You are, are seated. It's already taken care of. It is done. It's not in question. If you have been saved, you have a seat. And it's so finished, we can put it in the past tense, seated with him in the heavenly places. There's your throne. Out of the dust and into glory forever with God. 
Psalm 113 is meant to be a proclamation of just how majestic and wonderful our God is. And it's meant to be an encouragement that your dust won't last. Your ashes aren't forever. And if you believe in Jesus, even now, your spot is already filled in heaven. It is seated. You are done. It is finished. You get to be with God forever. Praise God that there is no one like our God in majesty or in mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for proclaiming your goodness and your grace and your majesty and your mercy so that we can know you and be known by you. God, what a privilege it is to read your word so that we, we can know you rightly. And God, thank you that you have shown us how unrivaled you are. God, your majesty has been on display from the beginning of time. And we count it a privilege that we, some of us here even, have already experienced that majesty in amazing ways. And we experienced it because you showed us mercy. You stooped down. You raised us up. You saved us so that we could be seated with you forever. Father, I pray that for any who have not yet come out of the ashes, God, that we would hear the good news today, that we would respond in faith, that we would repent of our sins, acknowledge that we have nothing apart from you. We would rest alone in your redemption out of the ashes so that our place could be seated with you forever. God, for those who feel like they're walking in ashes or still sitting in them, God, we pray that you would remind us, you would encourage us by your majesty and your mercy. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.